Hi, I'm Tim. Let's read the Bible together. We're going to kick off reading Deuteronomy 31, verses 14 to 18. The Lord said to Moses, Now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting, where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come on them. And in that day, they will ask, have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. And now we're going to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 48 to 52. On that same day, the Lord told Moses, go up into the Abarim range to Mount Nebo in Moab, across from Jericho, and view Canaan, the land I am giving the Israelites as their own possession. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the desert of Zin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I'm giving to the people of Israel. Well, as we conclude our series in Deuteronomy today online, unplanned as that was, uh, let's pray and ask that God will give us insight into his word so that we might be encouraged as we reflect on what he has to say to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word given to us. We acknowledge that though thousands of years ago in the book of Deuteronomy, your word speaks clearly to our situations today. And we pray that as we hear your voice, you might help us to respond in repentance and faith. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on September 28, 2010, the host of the show, Australia's next top model, Sarah Murdoch, announced the wrong winner of the reality show's $25,000 prize. During the live final from Sydney's Luna Park in front of 2,000 people, uh, Murdoch said the winner was Sydney's Kelsey Martinovich. But after Martinovich, 19-year-old had soaked up all the applause and even made her acceptance speech, it was then that Murdoch's, Murdoch's face fell as she listened to the producer's voice in her earpiece where she said, oh my, I, I don't know what to say right now. As Martinovich and the runner-up Amanda Ware uh, looked on at each other, unsure what was happening, Murdoch said, 
Well, I'm feeling a bit sick about this. No, I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. This is a complete accident. It's Amanda. I'm so sorry. This is what happens when you have live TV, folks. This is insane. And then where the 18-year-old was then awarded the top prize. Whoops. And in a similar incident, the following year, organisers of the 2011 Tamworth Country Music Festival apologised after Lee Kernighan was wrongly announced as the winner of Album of the Year Award. At the official ceremony on January 22, um, he came forward onto the stage to accept the gong for Planet Country as music for Graham Connor's song, Still Walking, was played. And even though Connor's name was engraved on the trophy that he was to receive and his song was playing, organisers let the event keep continuing, even as radio was live streaming it and the error was broadcast across Australia. Country Music Association General Manager Cheryl Hayes blamed the episode on human error, confusion and a late night. We're incredibly sorry, she said. You see, sometimes the wrong person is honoured. All the focus is given to one person, the praise when they're not the worthy recipient. Now, when it's an honour of greater importance, unlike the examples that I've just shared, sorry for any country music fans, then it is a bit more embarrassing. In fact, it's offensive. It can take away glory that cannot be shared with another. And as the book of Deuteronomy comes to a close, the death of Moses takes place. And it might seem that he was a leader worthy of all honour, having led Israel out of Egypt, received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, sorted out the difficulties of wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But that would be to give the glory to the wrong person. Because Moses points beyond himself. Which leads us to the big question we're going to consider today. How does Moses point forward to someone greater? How does Moses point forward to someone greater? Well, that brings us to the first answer uh, to that question, which is this. He could not change hearts. Moses could not change hearts. Notice again what is recorded in Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 and 17. The Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come on them, and in that day they will ask, Have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? You see, the sad future reality is now declared that after the death of Moses, which was imminent, Israel would turn aside. They would worship other gods and forsake their covenant with the one true God. And the expression here that's used, prostitute themselves, is used in a number of places in the Old Testament uh, for such an act of spiritual unfaithfulness. And the outcome of this future breach would be to bring all the covenant curses that had already been outlined very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 28 upon them. They would fall on them. If they rejected God, then he would turn away from them. And the song that actually follows in chapter 32 would be a witness 
against Israel's future failure, along with this book of the law, Deuteronomy, which would be a second witness. Now, you would have to say that this is a sad legacy, uh, despite the leadership that Moses had provided over so many decades to the people. They would turn away, their hearts would remain unchanged, disasters would follow. And that's despite him preaching this final sermon to the people, so full of warnings about what was ahead, and they needed to stay firm in their trust in the Lord. And we're left thinking that Israel and God's people today need someone better than Moses, someone who can offer real, lasting change. Well, it's written in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 and 6, that Jesus is greater. Have a look at these words. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So though both uh, Moses and Jesus were faithful in their roles, Jesus is worthy of far greater honour in verse 3. And this is because Moses was simply a servant in God's house, while Jesus is the son over God's house in verses 5 and 6. You notice too how the writer uh, uses the metaphor of a building or a house to highlight Jesus being the creator over all things, including God's people, while Moses is just one of his people. In verse 4, God the Father is the builder of everything, and therefore, in verse 3, to honour Moses more than Jesus the Son is like praising the building rather than the designer or the builder. Now, back in 2007, uh, the expert evaluation report to the UNESCO World Heritage Committee on the Sydney Opera House stated the following. It stands by itself as one of the indisputable masterpieces of human creativity, not only in the 20th century, but in the whole history of humankind. It would be hard, I guess, as a result to imagine much higher praise for a building. But as they went on to note, it's the human creativity that deserves the credit. Jörn Utzen was a relatively unknown 38-year-old um, Danish man until January 29, 1957, when his entry, Scheme 218, was selected as the design for the National Opera House to be built at Bennelong Point, Sydney. From 1964 onwards, the precast uh, rib vault of the shells began to be erected to deliver Utzon's vision. However, Utzon also had spectacular plans for the whole interior of the building, um, but he was unable to really realise that part of his design. Um, in mid-1965, a new government came to power in New South Wales, and the Minister of Works um, began questioning Utzon's designs, his schedules, his cost est estimates, and then eventually just stopped paying him so that he was forced to withdraw as the chief architect in 1966. Now, this produced protests and marches through the streets of Sydney led by famous Sydney architect Harry Seidler. But the New South Wales government 
decided not to reinstate him. Jonatsen left the country at the end of April 1966 with his family, never to return to see the finished masterpiece again. Somehow it seemed that the building was more important than the designer at that point. And we can easily sense the dishonor to Utsun as the creator is rejected. But then just imagine the weight of offense when we view Christ as inferior to a member of his house. Nobody, even including the great Moses who had led the people of Israel for so many years is more than a servant while Christ is the son over God's house and he is worthy of great honor. And with that praise of the son and the need to heed his final revelation, the gospel that he brings and the work of the Holy Spirit that he grants, there's still the need for each one of his followers today to spur one another on to heed God's word, to not turn away in sin as the Israelites did from the word that Moses had delivered to them. See, as the writer to the Hebrews sees it, God's people have a daily choice every age. We have heard God's voice. We have listened to his promises. We have seen what he has done also. We've received the warnings not to ignore his words. And we can either respond each day to his word in repentance and faith, or we respond in unbelief and cultivate a sinful, unbelieving heart, a hardening of our heart, which disobeys God and ultimately turns away from him. And so we have a role to play for each other here as God's people at WBC. We're to spur one another on. The writer says in Hebrews 3 verses 13 and 14, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. So let me ask you, who can you encourage today? Even more, who will you encourage tomorrow and the day after? This is something that we can do for one another each day as part of God's community. We need each other. We need the body of Christ working together so that all of us might stay on track. Well, that brings me to a second answer, a second answer to our question about why Moses points us forward to someone greater. Well, secondly, he could not defeat sin and death. He could not defeat sin and death. Notice again what is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 32 from verse 48. On that same day, The Lord told Moses, go up into the Abram range to Mount Nebo in Moab opposite Jericho and view Cain and the land I am giving the Israelites as their own possession. And there on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. Well, as we consider this second part to our passage, 
The Abram range of mountains lies at the northeastern end of the Dead Sea, across from Jericho, and it provides a view of much of the land of Canaan. In the opening chapters of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses had actually blamed the Israelites for his inability to enter the Promised Land. It was their fault. It was their failure that would mean that God would prohibit him from entering. But we see here as the fuller story is unfolded for us that ultimately it's due to Moses' own actions. His sin, along with that of Aaron's, his brother in Numbers chapter 20, is the real reason that he will miss out. The Israelites had certainly complained about the lack of water at Meribah and they had provoked Moses and Aaron, they had whinged mightily about the situation they faced and Moses threw himself down at the tent of meeting before God, pleading that God might provide water for the people. And God had promised he would. But nonetheless, when it came to that moment, uh, he did not follow God's instructions. God had instructed him to bring it from the rock, but he inferred that he and Aaron were the ones providing the miraculous water as he struck the rock twice, saying, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? And they were immediately rebuked by God. God said to Aaron and to Moses at that point, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now, this had only come about due to the complaints of the people, but nevertheless, Moses had failed. And God graciously, at this point, at the end of Moses' life, allows him to view the land. It was a hard reality for him to accept that he was not going to enter. It's highlighted by the number of times he raises it in the first three chapters of Deuteronomy and several times here at the end of the book. But he is allowed to view the land, and in a sense, Moses had entered into the suffering of his people in a way that foreshadowed a future servant of Yahweh who would be able to lead a blameless life but would take on the sin of the people truly. In Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6 we read this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed, for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Moses was not an innocent victim. Unlike Jesus in his death, the eternal son, who fulfilled the words of Isaiah 53, becoming that suffering servant, now, the interesting thing in the case of Moses and his interaction with Christ comes in Luke chapter 9 with the transfiguration. Moses would appear in the promised land when he and Elijah met with Jesus on another mountaintop as Christ prepared to go to the cross. You see, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions that those who trust in him might be forgiven and given peace. And so we read those words in Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. 
Now, the word departure there in Luke chapter 9 is actually the word exodus. Moses oversaw the great salvation event of the Old Testament, the exodus from Egypt. And those great events pointed forward to the new exodus or the departure of Christ, where he, the spotless lamb who bore our sin and won salvation for all who believe, would be given His departure or return to the Father in heaven would be via his death and resurrection, which would rescue us from our enemy of sin and its consequence of death. The very things that Moses could not overcome. What Moses failed to do, Christ would do. And this is just wonderful news for us. Because death is our great enemy, brought about by sin in this world, in our own lives. But it was defeated in the work of Jesus. It's become fashionable, hasn't it, in our culture to say, well, death is just a a natural part of life and therefore it shouldn't concern us overly. We should just be able to be uh, quite at peace as we face death. But the Bible teaches us that death is an intruder and that it does trouble people because God has set eternity in our hearts. We realise, like the famous uh, Russian writer Leo Tolstoy, that the very existence of death actually mocks any lasting legacy, any purpose in this life. He wrote, My question that at the age of 50 brought me to my knees was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Although death is a part of this fallen world, part of the curse because of humanity's rejection of God, it was not God's intention from the very beginning. And so it hurts us as we observe it. It strikes us deeply. You know, if you have ever cried at a funeral, you'll understand the pain that the death of someone close to us brings. And the result is that, generally speaking, our culture struggles to face it. It knows it's the enemy, but is fearful of it. And so we'll constantly look to extend life, to avoid that final moment. And the reaction when finally confronted with death is like the famous Dylan Thomas poem, that Welsh poet who wrote as his own father died, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. But as Christians, we can have peace as we face our mortality. We can have peace in anxious times, such as this latest lockdown even. Jesus offers eternal life. With him, with an immortal body that is free of decay, that will not die. And that sure hope is based on the death and resurrection of Christ, who defeated sin and death and gives purpose for us now in the present. And so to shift from fear to confidence is an amazing thing. Christians should have that freedom from fear, a rightly placed confidence as we approach death, not because of anything we have done or of anything that we'll ever do, but simply because of the perfection of Jesus, 
the one who can change hearts, the one who can overcome sin and death. Jesus has the answer to the question, what happens next? Because he's gone before us. And that is how Moses points us forward to someone far greater, the Saviour who was to come, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that in and of our own strength, we're not able to respond to you as we would like. And because of that, we sin and fall short of your perfect standards and the consequences of death follow. And yet in your Son, we have one who can change people. Not something that Moses was able to do, for the law has no power to change a heart. And yet through your grace shown to us and the granting of your spirit, we can be changed. We can live a new life. We have a new confidence because in our Saviour, sin has been defeated. Its power over us has been broken. And the consequences of death have been reversed so that all those that trust in him can be offered life and life eternal. And so we thank you for all the blessings that come to us in Christ, that one who's far greater than the shadow that was Moses many centuries before. Help us to continue to hold firmly to our faith in the Lord Jesus. And we ask that you might strengthen us to do so this week. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.